Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, Tech Talking fans, air conditioners, and other assorted electrical appliances. Welcome to another Tech Talk with Matthew Dixon, fast tracking you into a better, brighter future and keeping you one step ahead of the Joneses. If you're new to the podcast, prepare to be bedazzled by our very own Bobby Dazzler. It's Matthew Dickerson. How has your week been, Matt? Yeah, good. I do like the idea of fast tracking. That's the the go these days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, fast track direct from the US. I don't want to. I got to find another version. That's yeah. right. So <laughs> I'm not sure how we fast track this to people, but if they go to the their podcast app at 9:01 a.m. on Monday morning, well, they can get it fast tracked. My 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 implication was is that if they're looking to get into the future. This is the shortcut. This is shortcut. the fast track of the future, right? This is yeah, their okay. shortcut. So I misunderstood that completely. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be clear with me. I've seen, I've, no, no, you were, you were clear. <laughs> I, I've seen too many of the ads where they're, they're fast tracking for things. Anyway, so look, this week's been interesting because we've got this whole new economy that's happening, which is going to scare some people out there. Probably not so much our listeners. Everything scares me these days. <laughs> okay, well, it's not going to scare you. You're going to be okay <laughs> with this because this new economy involves renewable power and we've got some people who might have a living that they get from coal, coal coal-fired power stations, Mm. mining coal, whatever it might be. So some of those people don't want the world to change. Mm. They want it all to stay the way it is because it's all convenient to them right now. But the thing I get excited about is as we see things change, this new economy, Australia, I think, is in a fantastic position to take advantage of this. And I saw this week where there was some money announced for a business case to be put forward to create a whole green energy hub around a renewable energy zone, around some area where you've got some treated effluent, some sewage treatment, water that comes out. So how can you use that water? Mm. Can you create some other industries? So component manufacturing, solar panel reuse or recycling, green energy, or sorry, green hydrogen production, these sort of things. Can you do all that? Well, it's easy for you and I to spitball a bit and throw those terms around. It all sounds pretty good. But putting a business case around it, putting some government money. Yeah, turning it into something tangible, yeah. That's right, and showing that these are the things that will make this whole new economy work. And one of the things in the new economy is that Australia might be able to manufacture again. Now, we know that we haven't (laughs) been great at manufacturing. Well, that's not right. We've been great at manufacturing, but we like to pay... Our human beings. It's a difficult wage. when you've got competitors that are that are cutting corners, isn't it? Well, cutting wages and paying yeah. people wages that can't really be called wages. We like people to be able to live on their wages, which seems like a sensible, nice thing to do, mm. but it means that our manufacturing has been too expensive. But when we get to the stage where power will be more important, availability of power, availability of renewable power will be more important than cheap labour, then suddenly Australia could be in the manufacturing game again. Mm. And that might be some of the things that come out of this business case, this business study to see what other industries could be generated out of the natural natural components that are there with the renewable energy zone. So all very exciting, but I love the idea of the new economy and how can we fit into it. No, forget about fitting into it. How can we thrive? How can we be leaders in this new economy? And we've been very lucky in the past. We've been able to dig up stuff and sell it to the world. So our standard of living has been quite good. But now we've got to be a bit smarter than that. We've got to work at other ways we can do things that the world might want using what we've got here already. So hopefully opportunity there. Well, hopefully we're perched in a good spot too. Like uh, It's a good springboard to come off. I think so. And grateful for the industrial age for that. But it's time to move on, right? Yeah, exactly right. All right, on to our first story. If I told you that the best-selling sedan in Australia for the last three decades 
was the Toyota Camry, you'd probably save your surprised-faced emoji for something else. Maybe you might have hoped that maybe some of those years could have been more successful for Falcons and Commodores, if you're a red-blooded Aussie. But regardless, for a fairly standard five-seater sedan, the Toyota Camry makes complete sense as the most popular option in Australia. Well, that was until December the 31st, 2022, when it lost its 28-year perch at the top of the charts to the new champion that's got Matthew Dickerson looking very smug indeed. <laughs> well, let's go back to the Camry for a minute. I've bought a few Camrys in my lifetime. and I still, They're a good car, and that's the were. reason why they're on top, right? And I still remember the first one I bought because I went along and I was a Holden fan. I'd had a Holden Ute. My first car was a Holden Ute, HZV8 Ute. And I went along to buy a Commodore and took one for a drive, and that was all fantastic. And a friend of mine said, you should just go and have a drive of one of those... Camry things. And I went, oh, no, I don't think so. I love my Holden, I love yeah, my Commodores. Yeah, it'll be fine. And for finally, for some reason, I don't know why, I went, oh, okay, I'll go and do it. I'll, I'll keep this friend of mine happy. And I went and took a Camry for a drive and I went, oh, wow, that's actually pretty good. And the mm. price seems quite reasonable. And it seems like a more modern vehicle. That old Commodore seemed like it's a bit old fashioned <laughs> now. So it didn't take me long after I drove it. Oh, to you're say, so fickle. I, I am, apparently. <laughs> so it just seemed so much better. So I bought a Camry and we bought a few Camrys, both personally and in one of my businesses. We had a few Camrys over the years. So the Camry has been a great car. I've, I've had a hybrid Camry as well. So they moved on with the times there. But when you look at the top 10 sedan sales for 2022, the Camry's still up there. It's number two. And when you look at sales, 2021, they sold 13,081 Camrys in Australia. It dropped back to 9,538 in 2022. So mm. a bit of a drop, which then gives you an opportunity. Before I say the number one, let's just look at some of the other ones. Number three, Mercedes-Benz C-Class. Number four, and there's BMW quite a big series. gap between two and three there as well. It's there is, noting. isn't there? That's right, yeah. Number five is another Mercedes-Benz. I'll skip number six for the moment. Number seven, Mazda 6. Number eight, Skoda. Number nine, BMW 4 Series. Number 10, Alexis. So lots of traditional brand in there. But number one with 10,877 sales, so about 12, 1,300 more than the Camry, is the Tesla Model 3. Who'd have thunk? Unbelievable. Number six is the Polestar 2. Now, Polestar, of course, is the EV variant of the Volvo mm. brand. So you've got two EV models in there in the top 10. So the next thing that I started thinking was, wow, the sales figures for EVs must be going through the roof. Mm, not quite. Ah. As we know, it was at about, it was less than 2%, I think 1.95%, we've discussed it before, about 1.95% for 2021 overall EV sales in this nation. So less than 2%, not that exciting. We normally sell about a million new cars a year in this country. Mm. So you're talking about maybe 20,000 cars. EVs overall for 2022 hit 33,410, so a bit over 3%. That's a an increase, if you like, it's an increase of 50% over the previous year, but you're coming off a very low base. Then you start to think about it, hold on, the Tesla Model 3, 10,877 sold out of 33,410, that's not a bad percentage. Then add in the 8,717 Model Y, which yours is one of those, 8,717, mm. you start to get up towards 20,000 Teslas sold out of the 33,000 EV mm. sold. So you're in a pretty healthy position if you're Tesla in terms of the market share in the EV market. But what's 
slowly happening now is you're getting more and more of these different vehicles that are starting to come along. Mm. And sure, Tesla's way out in front at the moment in terms of their sales, but other vehicles are coming along as well. But I'm pretty excited, you're right, the fact that you've got an EV on top of the charts in the sedan, the medium vehicle sedan category. So... it's it's a, it's a start anyway. I was in Melbourne recently and uh, was I saw the the showroom for Genesis and I, that's a new brand that's come out of EV and I'd be interested to see how they go over the next couple of years. That was a pretty slick looking car. They are actually so that's the luxury brand, luxury EV brand mm. of Hyundai. Yeah, so, right. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, and they do. You're right. They do make some nice cars there, and so you're going to see more of that. A bit like the Polestar version, and I suppose companies like Lexus started that a long time ago as well. Lexus came up with a luxury car version of Toyota, mm. and again, other companies have done that. Acura did that for Honda, but some of them are going to be more specifically focused on the EV variant of that particular brand. So look, it's getting there. Big news. I'm pretty keen to see what it looks like in another year's time. And on the back of all of this, you think that Tesla would say, fantastic, our sales are going well, but just to really start to squeeze some of those good old-fashioned ICE vehicles, they've dropped their prices. Dropped, I said, their prices. So when you say ICE, you mean internal combustion engine, yeah? Correct, that's right, yeah. So Tesla has dropped their prices by 17% in Germany for the Model Y, by 20% for the Model Y in the US. So they're dropping their prices by large chunks there. Now, they're saying that as they get better at the manufacturing process, as they become more efficient at the manufacturing process, they can start to drop their prices. Now, I'm sure they're still making good margins on their cars, but the fact they're doing that, gee, that starts to ramp up the pressure, doesn't it? I was on the website the other day, and the Tesla Model 3 was at 68 thousand and so that's very competitive i think well it is but it gets better than that i've had one on order for one of my staff since about august last year and i think i mentioned it previously just at the end there it's almost ready to be delivered it's about a week away from me delivered they sent an email and said sorry prices have changed it's now gone down by a bit over a thousand dollars so it'll mm. drop down to under sixty seven thousand dollars for that particular model so it's and when you there. do the maths over five years, when you're uh, paying so much less to, to, to charge this up than to pour petrol into the tank yeah. um, and less servicing as well, um, yeah, you're really saving yourself as much as $30,000 over five years. It, it really depends on the kilometres you do. The more you do, the more mm. the saving is. But the reality is what you should do if you're going to buy a vehicle is forget the ticket price. What you should do is look at the total cost of ownership. How much is this car going to cost me to own for the next say, five years, pick a time frame that you'd normally keep a car for. So it's the initial price, and then it's the sale price. So that's how much you're going to lose on that over that time frame. And then it's the servicing, then it's the fuel, then it's all the things that go into that car over the next five years. Add all those up, do the comparison between petrol and EV, and suddenly you'll find, wow, EVs mm. are pretty attractive there. Mm. Airbus is a name synonymous with big planes that carry lots of people all at once. It's their thing. But as many pilots will tell you, they also like to perch themselves at the cutting edge of technology as well. Now, Airbus is trialling autopilot landings using bug-eye camera technology. And Matthew, it's caused a real stir among Aussie pilots. It's caused a stir amongst pilot associations, amongst pilots, amongst possibly the travelling public as well. So you've got to talk us through what bug-eye technology is, yeah? Well, I'm going to get to that in a moment. But before I get to that, I want to go back to 
probably the movie I reference the most is good old Flying High, or as it was called in the US, <laughs> Airplane! Exclamation mark. And in that, of <laughs> course, you had. <laughs> I am, and stop calling me Shirley. In that, we had Captain Clarence Over and co-pilot Roger Murdoch. And of course, in the movie, they both got sick. They both ate the fish. Mm-hmm. They both got sick, and then there was no one to fly the plane. Of course, any the passengers there to fly the plane, and on it goes. You forgot the bit about the autopilot as well. The um, well, blow up. Otto, <laughs> yeah, Otto, the autopilot that uh, that blows up in there. So. One of the things that pilots do in planes at the moment is they do actually have a process where they eat different meals because you've got two pilots ah, on a plane yeah. and you don't want them, they've obviously all watched Flying High, you don't <laughs> want them to eat the same, same meal. The same food poisoning. Exactly right. Goodness now, me. the number of times you've had an incapacitation of a pilot in an aircraft is probably minimal, but you've got that we in there. We wouldn't know about it if it happened anyway. So. Well, hopefully not, <laughs> but it's minimal. There, there was an incident recently where one pilot actually died, so you go, phew, thank goodness there were two pilots mm. in the cockpit. But let's go back a long time, back in the early days of commercial flights. If you could afford to fly, I mean, a transatlantic flight probably cost you half the cost of a car. It was a ridiculous cost. But if you went up to the cockpit, and you probably were allowed to go back in the cockpit (laughs) in those days, there were five people in the cockpit. So you had, obviously, the two pilots, but you also had an engineer you had a, a navigator. A navigator, yeah. that's right. And you had someone else that was, I don't know, hanging around just to make sure everyone's doing their jobs. <laughs> the guy who got the coffee. <laughs> so I think you actually had a radio, a radio operator yeah, as well. Probably, so, yeah, yeah. so a radio operator, a navigator, a flight engineer, and then the two pilots. Now, we would think it would be a bit silly to have five people in the cockpit of a mm. plane now. And obviously technology started to take over some of those particular roles. A navigator, oh, sure, we've just got this. We put it in now and it tells us where we're going and off we go. And mm. a flight engineer and, and the radio operator it all seems a bit silly now. But there were some major dramas, probably not so much from getting from five down to three, but when they wanted to go from three down to two, and we're talking the late 70s, early 80s, there were pilot strikes there were oh really yeah wow. some, some pretty serious meetings amongst airlines and pilot associations about the loss of these people from all the all these navigators were worried about being out of a job and all yeah. these flight engineers what other job am I going to have where I get to push buttons in and out when something doesn't work and reboot it mm. I mean I'm sure there's something much more important than that but that was a major issue at the time we got past that obviously some negotiations were had and they guaranteed jobs for a certain number of years I'm sure or redundancies a whole range of things but. We all feel quite comfortable with two pilots in there now. Airbus is talking about maybe not getting to zero pilots on a plane, but that's down the track, I'm sure. But they want to get back to one pilot on a plane because they believe that it's safe enough now to get to the point where you can fly a plane with one pilot. The pilot can do all the work. It's only if something happens. But then if something does happen, you don't want to be going out looking for a, mm. a pilot that used to fly in the Air Force like flying like the away. the long-haul flights from Sydney to, to Los Angeles or whatever, 15 hours or whatever, that's a long time to sit in a cabin by yourself without talking to anyone. <laughs> it is a long time <laughs> to sit there. But I think on some of those flights they might still have a couple of pilots, but not maybe a couple of teams. But the the plan is by the year 2030, you're looking at some commercial airlines are hoping to get to the point where they do away with the second pilot. Mm. So they just have the single pilot. So now get back to what you mentioned about the technology that Airbus is working with. So there's this concept called biomimicry. And this is where we take the wonderful things that happen in nature and try and adapt that in technology. And that's exactly what they're doing here dragonflies apparently fly. I don't know how they work this out because I don't know how many dragonflies I've interviewed to get this information, (laughs) but apparently they can recognise landmarks and they can actually divert and change their flight path by looking at 
landmarks, recognising those, and then moving on to where they need to get to. And so they've used that same technology in setting up cameras around planes. And sure, you've got GPS systems to be able to say you are in a certain position, but the cameras also can get then higher levels of accuracy about landmarks around them and say, for example, they had to divert from one airport to another. Oh no, there's been a problem with that airport. There's been some sort of spill or there's been some disaster or emergency. Mm-hmm. So you've got to divert from Sydney, Kingsford Smith Airport to Bankstown Airport. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Well, sure, you might rely on the flight navigation systems, but when you're getting down to landing, they're using these recognition of landmarks and basically almost like a human would do to say, right, I can't land there. I'll look over here. There's somewhere I can land. Let's change the path very over cool. there. It is very cool. So they believe when you get this sort of technology and all the other systems that we've already got on planes, with all the positioning systems, with the radars, etc., you can get to the point where the plane could take off, fly and land completely by itself. They're not saying do that yet, <laughs> but they're saying one pilot in there can be involved, engaged in that process, but if something happens to that pilot, well, the plane can take over from that. The real question, I think, and this will be the critical thing, I'm sure you'll get to the stage where some aircraft, some commercial aircraft will have one pilot. And there may be some advertising that goes on with some airlines who will say, fly with us, we're cheaper because we've only got one pilot because we're not paying Mm. all those extra wages. And other airlines will say, fly with us, we're safer. Because we've got two pilots. We've got two pilots. (laughs) And it will be a little bit dearer to fly with that aircraft or that airline. Which one will you go with? And that's the real question here. People do go with cheap you might carriers now. get a cheaper now. ticket if you taste test the pilot's food, the single pilot's <laughs> food, if you're prepared to be the, the tester. <laughs> or maybe the pilot, the single pilot's got to bring his own food on the plane yeah, with him, right. I'm sure. But, but this is where we're headed. Airbus believe they've got a solution. Other airlines, I'm sure, would say to Airbus, yes, if you can show us that this is going to work effectively, then we're happy to buy planes off you. But just even the the cockpit, imagine having a cockpit with five people in there, the refits, the retrofitting they would have had to do to get it back to that space saving there. So it's a changing world. One of the things that one of the pilot associations said is it's all well and good, but you might be able to fly that plane autonomously without pilots. But what happens if there is a computer failure, which sometimes happens, <laughs> then you're in yeah. a whole lot of trouble. I don't even want to think about it. Don't that even talk either. about that. We've been talking about AI quite a bit lately. And why wouldn't you? On a tech podcast in 2023? Of course. Now, artificial intelligence is seeping into all areas of life. And so it's not surprising that it would find its way into the health industry as well. How would you feel about a medical diagnosis via AI? Matt, we're still quite away from replacing doctors, but AI diagnoses have been pretty close to the mark in recent days. They have been, and it's got to be better than good old Dr. Google. As soon as someone's got a lump on their leg or some illness, of course, what do Dr. Google say? And Dr. Google says everything from you're going to die in five minutes' time to it's okay, don't worry about it. So it's not great. And again, as we know, when you just go to the internet and get information, you've got every different opinion, every crackpot out there, everyone throwing their information in and how do you work out the good stuff from the not so good stuff. What they've been doing with AI is they've been taking a whole range of questions, commonly asked questions, they've been using Dr. Google to get some of these questions and basically they took, for example, 3,000 commonly searched medical questions and fed those in with a whole range of medical information to start to get some answers back that could be a bit more accurate. Then what they said was, we want you to go and do a medical exam. So they gave the AI a medical exam. Wow. 
And so the first question you say is, okay, well, that's great. What did you do? How did you tailor it for the AI? No, it was a medical exam written in the same words as a normal medical exam. They took a sample medical exam. And it got on that exam 67.6%. So you kind of go, well, I'd like it to get 100%. Yeah, that's not cool. <laughs> but medical students, when we're out there seeing doctors now, they don't have to get 100% in every exam. Yeah. So this is probably getting along the lines of Hopefully what, they're doing better than 65, though. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. They're getting distinctions, high distinctions. <laughs> Can I have the doctor that got high distinctions through their, their university degree? So it's not too bad, though. And again, I suppose what we talk about with some of these solutions we discuss on a regular basis, is that it might be a good initial indicator, not the final exam or not the final process that you go through to suddenly end up on the operating table, but an indicator is these are the possibilities of what it might be, maybe seek some more advice on this at a more accurate level than just what Dr. Google might do. Can I add to this that uh, I had, a, like, when I was reading about this story, um, a really interesting uh, circumstance where I had an extension science student who, uh, an extension science, they have to do a project over the course of the 12 months, um, and it's got to be first-hand research. So he actually was doing AI as a diagnosis tool and um, yeah, right. was looking at AI's ability to diagnose uh, the type of breast cancer tumour. So on, on this sort of level, it was, it was a very narrow sort of field that he was looking at. And he found that um, there were, he tested uh, six different programs and one of them was able to get 97% accuracy on yeah. the type of tumour uh, that was occurring in breast cancer situations. So AI, the power of it. That's right. And again, big. it takes so many human components out of it. You get a doctor that you see that's had a bad day and didn't get much Tired, sleep last yeah. night and then might miss something in that, say, that 97% exactly. that you might hit there. Doctors, I'm sure, don't get 100% right all the time. How many times do you hear someone say, get a second opinion, because maybe that first one wasn't so good. So this is getting there, but again, where I can see this being used is you might go to a medical practice, and the first thing you do is you sit down with a computer and you answer a few questions, and again, they know they've got something a bit better than Dr. Google. They've got something that's got some AI behind it so that you get that initial process and then you can finally get to see a doctor. But already some of the simple stuff's been done. It's taken your blood pressure. It's taken your heart rate. Mm. It's an you've answered a few questions to it. And then you've got some sort of path or pointing you down some sort of path and then the doctor can come along and put the the final human touch on top of it rather than going through all the steps and again i think you can just gain more productivity out of doctors then mm. rather than the doctors having to go through all the basic questions so i think there's a path for it there an online sit at home exam i think people would be a little bit uncomfortable with that initially but it might get to that point but i can see it might it. be a situation where you make the booking with the doctor you then do the survey at the you know the, well hopefully let's say it's a, not, not anonymous uh, but a but private um, survey yeah and um and so all that sort of those questions are done in advance and then the doctor when you actually sit down with them they're able to see you much quicker mm. and, and talk to you about the situation a lot quicker and again i think the the great part about a computer is it can have a huge amount of information. So a mm. doctor is going through that in their mind when someone says, I've got A, B, C, they're kind of narrowing down, all oh, right, it looks like it could be this, let's go mm. and test for that. That can do all that, AI can do all of that, but then where humans still have the edge of AI for the time being is that sort of analytical ability, that mm. ability to take all those things and say, well, it looks like it could be this, but let's analyse it and get the definitive answer on that. But it's certainly interesting where AI is going, certainly interesting where healthcare is going. I can see computers and AI being used so much more in healthcare. Mm.
Remembering past Prime Ministers of years gone by and some bold comments about just how fast maximum internet speeds needed to be in Australia is cause to consider the rate of technological evolution. Now, as tech evolves, and it evolves so rapidly, doesn't it? It'd be interesting to know what sort of tech holds its value and which tech runs the fastest, well, runs the fastest towards headlong redundancy. Well, Matt, you've been reading up on the depreciation report of 2022 and were there any surprises for us? It's amazing that someone does the depreciation report. We all know the technology reduces <laughs> yes. in value fairly quickly, yeah. so just accept that. But no. No, we want to find out which one's good, or like worse than something else. That's right. So I've got some categories here for you where I've got the winners and losers. And these are the values that they lose typically over about a year from one release of the product to the next release of the product, which is often about a year. But, but surely after a while, they go up in value again as they become nostalgic. Uh, they got nostalgic well, value. if you want to keep it in its box, buy it, never touch it, never open it, and plan on that being a big hit in 10 years' time. We talked about the original iPhone. Someone bought one of the original mm. iPhones and never opened it, sold it some 15 years later for tens of thousands of dollars. So not a bad rate of return in terms of what they were doing there. But you could also buy some duds in 10 years' time. <laughs> <laughs> you go, I've got a pristine condition widget, and they go, well, that's great, but no one cares about that anymore. So, yeah. so what are you saying about my N- Nintendo Game and Watches? Are they um, from 1983? Are they any good still? If you keep them long enough, surely, surely they'll grab some nostalgia value, but <laughs> maybe not. So the biggest I'll, – actually, I'll hit some different categories and give the biggest winners and losers. So in the smartphone category, the 2021 Apple iPhone 13 Pro Max – only, only depreciated by 44.6%. That seems like a big depreciation it in does. a year. Yeah. But for technology, that's not too bad. Go to the other extreme, the Google Pixel depreciated by about 98.6%. Oh, what? <laughs> so basically, in a year's time, if you could give it away, you've done well. You might have to pay someone to take it off your hands. Oh, wow. So that's a fairly big hit. In the tablet range, the iPad Pro 11 range depreciated by 56.7%, whereas in the big hit market, the Samsung 2018 Tab A depreciated by 94.8%, and the 2021 Galaxy Tab A 7 depreciated by 86.9%. So so the Samsung tablets don't seem to go quite as well as the Apple tablets. Smartwatches aren't great. Apple Watch Series 7 depreciated by 71.2%. In a year, that seems incredible. Mm. And again, the good old 2021 Samsung Watch 3 depreciated by 95.6%. So in a couple of years, that dropped fairly dramatically. What we're saying, though, is that if you wanted to trade in your Apple Watch um, and sell it to someone else, you're not going to get a very good price for it. And I guess the reason is because people just want to buy the brand new thing. They do want to buy the brand new thing. It's interesting, though, the phones, the, the iPhones seem to keep their value a bit better than, say, their watches. Mm. But again, maybe people are seeing that the value is increasing more dramatically or, or the technology is increasing more dramatically in, say, the newer technology like watches compared to phones. And in the games console, this is a bit better. The Sony PlayStation 5 only depreciated by 25%. So that's mm. a bit better. On the other end, the Nintendo Switch Lite depreciated by 65% and the Xbox Series S depreciated by 53%. So generally, yeah, Apple seemed to hold its value much better than, say, Samsung or Android devices. So that was interesting. The other part that was interesting is games consoles in general saw the smallest depreciation. The PlayStation 5, I mentioned 25%. 
The Xbox Series X, 36%. The Nintendo Switch, 43.3%. So you've Is got that because there's a lot more just on the market, secondhand ones on the market, because cranky mums uh, have <laughs> ripped the plugs out of the wall and decided they're going to sell it and well, to I get their sons to go and do the dishes? If there were more on the market, that would have hurt the value more. But I think mm. there isn't as much advancement in consoles they're not coming out as regularly yeah, okay. not coming out as often would be my general take on why the consoles seem to hold their value that little bit better and i just i haven't heard of many people trying to sell their apple watches or their uh yeah so if, if people aren't selling them then then you know everyone who wants to go and get an apple watch goes and buys a brand new one yeah quite possibly there's a range of factors there but maybe that's part of the reason why as well they try and sell it no one wants to pay even half price for mm. it a year old maybe 25 percent 30 percent now you get into that sort of market i'm going to confess go, i haven't had my my finger on the pulse of this market very closely <laughs> but um yeah well look a lot of people do buy their technology keep it for a couple of years and then stick it in the bottom drawer yeah because who knows they might want to open that bottom drawer in a few years time and go oh look at those things there but it's actually quite fascinating how much things depreciate so when people complain about their car depreciating at some great rate of knots well you ain't got nothing mm. compared to technology Whenever new tech hits the shelves, it's hopefully been carefully engineered to serve its purpose by a group of clever people, perhaps electrical engineers or industrial designers with a keen eye for functional quality. But in the modern marketplace, if it doesn't look good, then it's not going to sell very well. So that's where the graphic designers are brought in for the visual appeal. Now, we've all heard about earbuds and how they look, we all got ourselves a pair of earbuds, no doubt, and they look sleek and they're really discreet. But that's not enough anymore. The earbud game is stepping into the realm of becoming showy bling. Or is it that the bling game is going high tech with earrings becoming dual purpose, Matt? I don't know. Which one is it? This is one of those great things where finally form and function are combined. I have the it becomes cons- a mishmash and it's, you can't tear, the, uh, tear them apart. And that's form what we and want because I do have the argument with my three daughters, not so much my son, but my three daughters on a semi-regular basis about look at the function over form and they say, Dad, if it doesn't look good, then mm. I haven't got anything to do with it. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm. But this is one where I could honestly say to them, this combines form and function. If you like pearl earrings, and I'm not a big fan of them personally, but some people love their pearl, e- pearl earrings. So you get a set of pearl earrings and away you go. But then you want to put your earbuds in and it spoils the look just ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. So why don't you have pearl earrings that actually double? Not quite as earbuds, but you can listen to music. This pair of earrings has got little speakers built into the back of the pearl that actually directs the sound up into your ear so that if you're sitting half a metre away from someone, you can't really hear the listening to music, but you can hear the music fine being directed up into your ear. They won't block out all the sounds around you like a set of noise-cancelling earbuds would do, and that's probably okay if you are out walking somewhere and don't want to get run over by a car or you do need some of those ambient sounds coming in as well. That all sounds fine, but you've also got a microphone built in, so you can use them this for a conversation. Like Mission Impossible stuff. It does, doesn't it? And again, you look at them. I looked at photos of them. I looked at people wearing them, and they just look like a set of pearl earrings. Nothing yeah, right. unusual, nothing to see here. But again, incredible technology built in. One of the things I was interested in is that 
surely you can't have much of a battery in a set of pearl earrings. But you've got three and a half hours of music playback or two and a half hours of talk time using the microphones and the speaker in this. So that's not bad. Yeah. Probably most people don't go for a walk of three and a half hours or a train ride of three and a half hours, whatever it might be. So that's not too bad. Out of something that's fairly small. And they've even managed to squeeze a button into them so you can skip tracks forward and back like you'd expect <laughs> to do. So not a bad example of form and function. Great to see people saying we need to solve this problem because looking good or being effective is just not good enough anymore. And uh, I haven't tried them out yet, but I'm keen to see how well they do direct that audio up into your ear. And the competition's taken another turn. (laughs) Indeed it has. I like the idea of building with wood, even in the 21st century. I see it as a way of locking away carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it away for decades or or even centuries. If we can grow trees like a farmer does, or a farmer grows crops, managing them by active forestry, it's handy to know that young and growing Australian native hardwood trees pack away carbon dioxide faster than anything else for their first 25 years, which is the time when you would harvest the timber, of course. So for my two cents, I reckon hardwood forestry is a sustainable and effective industry, and that's my bit on the soapbox today. So I got a bit excited about this next story that's all about building with high-tech timber that has been treated to include air cavities, which give it some pretty awesome insulating properties. Matt, can you carve a little more shape out of this story? So it does seem interesting when we talk about technology and then we go to timber yeah now, what is the relevance Take a there step back but people are doing some incredible research around the world and i don't know how you come up with this whether it is just the classic case of we tried a few things and one of them seemed to work or they've put a whole bunch of science behind it but essentially what they do with this timber is they rapidly heat it they have it in a solution of sodium hydroxide and then they slowly cool it and what they found out of all of that was that it leaves tiny air cavities within the actual timber itself, doesn't lose much of its strength, Mm. but gives it 10 times the ability to insulate against heat or or heat transfer and 10 times the ability to insulate against sound transfer. Those air cavities effectively are absorbing some of that sound or some of that heat so that essentially you can build now out of timber, build houses out of timber, for example. What a great product to use. Many people used to build lots of houses out of timber, but not have to worry so much about putting some sort of insulation in the walls, Mm. not polystyrene, not some sort of wool or glass wool type uh, device or Bradford bat type thing in the actual walls to get that insulation. So timber could be making a bit of a comeback. And I agree with you, you are growing the timber. It's a renewable source Mm. of a building material. It's locking away that CO2. So it have got a whole range of good things going on. Providing you don't burn the timber... And it's, it's just going to sit there for as long as you need it there. And if you get to the end of its life in, I don't know, 100 years' time when yeah. that house eventually gets pulled down, you build a new house there, then timber is somewhat able to be biodegraded in the atmosphere. It doesn't yeah. need to be disposed of in some Recycling terrible way. Recycling ways even, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Mm. So, yeah, it does seem like a, a good concept. It seems like a way that you might see timber make a bit of a comeback. And, again, it's got that strength. Timber's always had enough strength to be able to build various you're not going to build a skyscraper out of it but you're going to build houses out of it quite easily so technology in the world of timber sounds like something quite fascinating university of maryland is doing this particular research at the moment and again i I think we'll see more of this they're calling it insular wood which is probably understanding all of its properties but it gives you an idea that it's not just good old-fashioned plain timber another cool story there 
For the last 20 years or so, various groups of engineers around the planet have been feverishly looking for ways to withdraw carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in large volumes and to do it with energy efficiency to counteract the effect of massive fossil fuel consumption. Seeding the ocean with algae, mass planting of trees, sequestration of carbon dioxide in the soil, they're all concepts that have been trialled with varying degrees of success. But the clinching factor is about the scale. How much and how quickly can that CO2 be sucked out of the air? Now, a Swiss company is claiming that it has the tech to do the job and pump that carbon dioxide deep down underground for storage. Matt, is this a legit opportunity for some climate repair? Maybe I've got it wrong. I've kind of focused a little bit on producing less CO2. Oh, less CO2, right. Okay. It seems to be, in my mind, a way that we can... Oh, as the overall um, standard? As the overall solution. Less CO2 in the atmosphere... Less production. It's got to be both, hasn't it? Well, maybe, but maybe this is a solution. Maybe we just keep doing what we're doing and just say, well, we'll just build some big devices to oh, suck right. that CO2 out of the suck air. It out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So that's what this company, Climeworks, has been working on, and they've actually got devices that are doing just that. Might keep some uh, fossil fuel companies really happy. It might, actually. They might say, forget about stopping burning oil and burning coal, we're, we're just, just going to be really sucking good out of the air. Out of That's the air. right. Now, I think you're right. The solution is probably both. Let's produce less and let's take what we've got there and take it out of the air so that we end up with a double-edged solution. That sounds fantastic. So Climeworks has been doing this for a little while, but now it's finally got a third party to verify how much CO2 is being taken out of the atmosphere. And that's important because you've got some pretty big companies. You've got companies like Microsoft, Stripe, Shopify, they're some of the companies already that have signed up to Climeworks to say, we want you to verify that we're getting towards net zero, we're producing less CO2, and we're going to get to that point where we're finally at CO2. Microsoft has made a big claim. Not only do they want to get to the point where they're net zero year by year, they want to get to the point where they can say, hand on heart, We've removed all the CO2 out of the atmosphere that we've ever produced historically. Wow. Now, that's a pretty big claim. That's a big claim. Wow. Now, scale. You mentioned the word scale. So this is where I think there might be a minor problem. At the moment, Microsoft use or produce, sorry, several million tonnes a year of CO2 just Mm. out of their overall operations. They've got a few servers kicking around a few different places and just producing their products. That's the sort of number we're talking about. At the moment, Climeworks say they can capture about 0.01 million metric tonnes a year of CO2. So just to satisfy Microsoft's annual production, forget about historical, Mm. they need to produce a fair bit more than they are now. So that's a bit of a problem, but this is early days. So maybe we'll get better at taking that CO2 out of the air. Maybe there'll be other companies who'll build bigger and better devices, but then you've got to put it somewhere. So you mentioned they go and bury it underground. Well, you've probably got to find enough places underground to put all this CO2 that you can actually satisfy that problem as well. And an episode of The Simpsons comes up where Homer became the garbage man and he started dumping all the garbage from everyone's surrounding county and then finally that garbage started popping up all over Springfield. So if you keep putting CO2 underground, uh, where does it eventually start to pop out? Where does Mm. it eventually break the seal somewhere? But it's interesting. It's just an interesting way of looking at things because, again, what I do like about this sort of story is that traditionally people are saying, let's produce less CO2. But some companies say, no, forget that. 
we'll just take out the CO2 so, that's yeah. in the atmosphere. I remember seeing um, theoretically, oh, sorry, there were, there were a number of the- theoretical ways of dragging carbon dioxide out of the air. Artificial trees I saw, uh, it was a filter that they were looking to build on a large scale. But right. um, yeah, it, they were all ideas. They weren't, they weren't actually hitting it up and now yeah. these companies... Well, these, um, are, these are doing it right now. They've yeah. got they, their um, plant, their direct air capture plant, DAC plant, is the largest of its kind in the world, but still a fair bit bigger and a fair few more we need to actually get to the stage where it's making a significant impact. Mm. Here's one for the OCD clean freaks. It's an electric air duster that packs a punch. Matt, it's really just a leaf blower for your bookshelves, right? <laughs> I like this because I do always keep a can of compressed air or two around the place. Of course you do. <laughs> because sometimes you might get a noisy fan on a computer, you just want to blow it out with a bit of compressed air. Sometimes your keyboard does look a bit dusty, so you just want to blow you know, it I've off. I've never kept a can of compressed air, but I'm going to do it now. I'm going well, to go, go and get myself you some. Should. But no, this might be a better solution. I've, I don't know how many cans of compressed air I've bought in my lifetime, but a lot would be my simple answer. <laughs> and I always believe the marking that I'd read on there that this compressed air was going to produce air out of its nozzle that was free of any liquids because you don't want to be squirting mm. liquids into your computer. That's you don't right. want to squirt all this air that's got some sort of water vapour in it. Whether or not that was just a marking or not, I'm not sure, but it seemed to be okay. It didn't seem to produce any droplets or wreck any computers. But this air duster is designed specifically for computers. Again, I don't know if they make any wild claims about not any water vapor, but surely if it's just taking the air that we've got and blowing it along, surely it's got a bit of water vapor in there. But to me, I could have so much more fun with something like this (laughs) because... I know you could. (laughs) Now, rather than having to justify how much compressed air I'm using just to do something quite useful, I could just do it all the time. I could (laughs) clean my keyboard every day, for example. It sounds fantastic. You can annoy your wife just by blowing behind her ears (laughs) with high pressure. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But this is the X-Power A25 Cyber Duster. And it's got the word cyber in there, so it must be good. Yes, it's got to be good, yes. It's <laughs> it must, futuristic. If it's got Bluetooth on it, I'm definitely there. <laughs> uh, but it actually is quite a, a sensible thing to do. The back of your TV, any mm. electronic components, they do tend to attract dust. And you look at something mm. where you think it's fairly clean, and you go, oh, my gosh, where did all that dust come from? Yeah. So having something like this, a little air blower, as you say, a leaf blower for your computer devices, your electronic devices, that's exactly what it is. You're blowing the dust somewhere else. Let someone else deal with the problem. Oh, no, it's the other parts of the lounge room dealing with the problem. But it does make sense. So if you don't want to buy your compressed air, you don't want to pay for those cans of compressed air, go and buy yourself a little electric air duster for your computer. Very cool little knickknack. Matt, they tell me that in a good old-fashioned game of chicken that an EV comes out off better than an internal combustion engine every time. Is that right? That's right. Now, I'm not condoning dangerous road games here, by the way, but uh, tell us more about this. Well, we do do crash testing of vehicles. We know that. And one of the things that the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety, the good old IIHS, has basically got to the point now where they're having to redesign some of their equipment because they've got heavier cars than our testing. EVs are often heavier than a traditional internal combustion engine car because you've got that battery sitting down the bottom of it. What they have done is, that's one part of it, is they need to redesign their equipment for the heavier vehicles. But in the testing, they've found that, yes, if you're going to have an accident, please don't plan on having an accident, but if you are going to have an accident, an EV is what you want to be Try to do it in an EV. (laughs) That's right. The weight is one part of it. So when you get a lighter car, 
smash into a heavier car, then momentum, mass times velocity, is going to be greater on that heavier car. So you're going to tend to move the lighter car out of the way a now bit careful more. careful here, Matt. We're going to get a mob gathering outside saying, you EV drivers, <laughs> That's you're right. making the road dangerous for us all. That's right. You're <laughs> going to destroy all those other lighter cars on the road. But if you do have a two-and-a-half-tonne vehicle run into a one-and-a-half-tonne vehicle, then the deceleration of the occupants in the EV is probably going to be a bit less. Now, that's relevant why you've got EVs and non-EVs on the road at the same time. We're eventually going to get at the stage where we've got all EVs, so yeah. that's going to be a moot point. But at the moment, that is one point that they've made. The second point is that you've got that weight down low. You've got the batteries down low across the base of the car, so the chance of you having a rollover in your EV are reduced dramatically. Mm. So you have your crash, you go sliding sideways, and you do keep sliding because it's unlikely to tip over. You might hit a few things and the car might tip up normally and it gets past that point of tipping over, rolling over, and so it rolls, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun to be in that car. The third thing they said was that you've got these great crumple zones at the front and back of a car because you don't have a big engine sitting there in the front. And sometimes in a car crash, you see that engine ends up on the lap of the person sitting in the front seat. You don't have that problem. Sitting at the back, you've often got a petrol tank sitting there, obviously, so that takes up a bit of that space there. It's all about the dissipation of energy as well. Exactly right. So you've got these better crumple zones. The fourth thing they said was that you've got vehicles that are later in their technology. So you're much less likely to have the accident in the first place because you've Mm. got the latest technology driving aids to help you stay away from that accident, avoid that accident in the first place. So you've got all these things going for you in driving an EV. But we've all seen videos of an EV that's been in a crash that's gone up in horrid flames and you can't put it out and the firefighters just stand aside and wait for those batteries to finish burning out. So people will say, don't want to be in an accident in an EV because I'm going to burn to a horrible death. Mm. Well, what they found in their testing so far is they haven't been able to create a fire in an EV. They've done all sorts of crash testing, side testing, front-on testing, a whole range of testing. Yes, we've seen videos where sometimes a fire does occur, but typically they found the fire occurs after the crash, after the occupants are away from the fire, people are removed from the scene and then sometimes you might find that the fire goes up. So you're still unlikely to burn to a horrible death in it. But keep in mind, the number of people in an internal combustion engine car crash and an EV car crash where there is a fire, at this stage they're saying the overall stats so that it's probably similar in both, maybe slightly lower in an EV, But keep in mind, a petrol car has got a big petrol tank sitting Mm. there with maybe 50 or 60 litres of petrol that sometimes leaks, sometimes leaks under hot components, sometimes catches on fire. So that sometimes burns as well. But the thing that I found fascinating of this is that across the world each year, there are about 170,000 cars that catch on fire after a car crash. Now, as you can oh, imagine, wow. most of those aren't EVs. That's a bigger number than I would have thought. Bigger number, huge number, I thought. And again, that's across the world, so all the car crashes across the world. So when you think about that... Even then, still, I would have thought maybe a couple of hundred or a thousand or so, but yeah. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So for all of those combustion car fires, the majority of those are petrol or diesel cars. They're not EVs. So you're finding that ones that do catch on fire, yes, EVs do sometimes catch on fire after a crash, but not at a higher rate than an internal combustion engine car. Mm. So if you're in a crash in an EV, you've got a lot of things going for you. You've got a whole range of different safety aspects there. 
again, don't plan on it, but if you're going to be in a crash, then being in an EV in a crash is probably okay. And like we need another reason to get an EV. <laughs> That's right, exactly right. And on that note, if you're listening in the car, we wish you a very safe journey home. That's all we've got for you today. Thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. Uh, it's uh, rolling along well this year already, just some of the things that are happening and every all the researchers are getting back into it, all the things that we expect to see in technology are happening. So it's just it's so hard to keep up with so many things happening out there and reduce it to only nine things each week. Mm, mm. Okay, folks, well, I have to put Matt back in his cage now with his laptop until next week uh, when we let him out and uh, he'll bring us another Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Sorry, Matt, you know the drill. Thanks for tuning in once again, folks. I'm your host, James Eddy. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. As always, please do all the liking and the subscribing and the stuff and importantly, drag someone else along next time for the ride. <laughs>